You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I can tell someone the title of my sermon this morning. Ask him this question. Was Jesus God? Was Jesus God? Tell me their answer. What, is, what did they say? Well, um, just wanted to, first and foremost, uh, praise God for this uh, past Summer Jam picnic. I think that was the biggest turnout that we've had in uh, several years, and uh, we just want to thank all the team members who were, who were part of setting up, for part of barbecuing and organizing the entire event. Yes, let's praise God for our dedicated team members and and. and and again, just a great turnout from that event. A lot of new faces, a lot of people from the community we got to connect with and have discussions about the gospel with. And so we praise God for all of that. And of course, there was a tug of war that we lost. For, I lost, but it's okay. You know, there's always next year, right? You know, I'm not bitter at all. Um, but we're, 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 we thank the Lord. We thank the Lord for that, uh, for that day. So now we are, as we, as we enter into this time of, in the, of being in the Word, we're going back to the Gospel of John series, our study in the Gospel uh, written by the Apostle John. And we took a break from this, if you recall, back in May, because we were going into the retreat, and there was just a bunch of other events in the, in the summer. And if you recall as well, the purpose for this series it was not simply to just study the book of John, but to be reminded of who our Savior is. When we started this series a couple years ago, we mentioned that when trials get tough and when life gets hard, it's always important for us to be reminded of who our Savior is in order to encourage our hearts, to bolster our faith through those, those challenges in life. And, 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 and it is, it's, this, this gospel is, is meant to encourage us, to build confidence in our Savior, to remind us of the sufficiency of Christ and even the, the supremacy of the gospel. And as we've been talking about so many times in this series, this is essentially John's purpose when writing this book. In John chapter 20, verse 31, this is the thesis of John's gospel. As we've been reading in the past, it says that these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John writes to give evidence as to why Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. And he lists out evidence for this. Jesus, he also writes to give us examples of why Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that he is equal with God in nature, in power, and in authority. And with the hopes that those who are reading this text, those who are reading this book, would come to faith, would truly come to know the God of the Bible. And he gives, as, as mentioned, he gives evidence of, of these, th- these, these, these things of Christ, of him being the Christ, of him being the Son of God, throughout all of the chapters that we've already looked through. Um, he, he talks about uh, these witnesses that, that testify to Christ's divinity, being, uh, the, that, the witnesses being John the Baptist, the disciples themselves, Scripture themselves, the Father Himself, and we see that in the early parts of the book of John. He also presents miracles that, that reference and call back to Old Testament prophecies of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And, and we see that in, in Jesus' first public miracle in turning the water into wine that is connected to Old Testament prophecy. We saw that when he fed the 5,000 and, and claims to be the, the bread from heaven, the bread of life from heaven, like the manna that fell from heaven. And, and we even see miracles that present his divinity all throughout the Gospel of John, when he heals the paralytic uh, man, when he walks on the water, calming the storm. There's even the explicit claims from Jesus himself that he, as mentioned, is equal with God in nature in power and in authority. That's in chapter 5 and chapter 7. But also equal with God in love. We see Christ's interactions with the Samaritan woman, dealing with sinners with compassion. You see Jesus dealing with sinners in love. 
And, and he also clarifies, by the way, how we are to be saved. If you remember that great discourse between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus in chapter 3. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's using this, this metaphor of being born again in that similar to how we have no control in, in our physical birth here in this world, Really, we have no control over our, over our spiritual birth, our spiritual rebirth. See, as Jesus talks about in that chapter, unless, unless the Spirit Himself works in us to, the, to do the regenerative work in our hearts, via the will of God, via the work of God, one cannot be saved. That's the whole intent behind chapter 3. Now, as we've been saying throughout this, uh, throughout this series, this series is an evangelistic uh, uh, series. Just as this book is, it has evangelistic intent to convince the lost, convince the readers that Christ is truly God, that He is truly the Savior of the world. But it also has, uh, has as we've been saying, an encouragement in, in it for, for those who already believe, an assurance to our faith that reminds us of who our Savior is in order to, to, to bolster us, to hold fast to our faith. Now, uh, that, now, all of this said, where we pick up in our passage today is another reminder of Christ's divinity in chapter 8. Jesus declares the second great I am statement throughout the, the, the Gospel of John. Remember, there's about seven I am statements of Christ in this Gospel, and we've already covered one, I am the bread of life, a couple of chapters ago, chapter four. And now we come across this second I am statement, I am the light of the world. Now, I, I know we have, you know, memory issues. It's been a couple of months since we left from this series, but just a reminder, the context of this statement that we just read in our passage today. Recall that this was taking, taking place during the Feast of Booths, a Jewish festival commemorating the Jewish time, the, the, the Jews' time in the wilderness with Moses. And so in this festivity, they would build booths or tents in the fields and live there, stay there for about a week, again, recalling to mind the time that they, the Israelites were in the wilderness wandering in the desert. Now, in addition to building tents in the fields, in the temple, they had these sort of these water rituals. Well, two things. They had a water ritual and a lighting ritual. The water ritual is every day in that week-long festivity, the high priest would gather uh, some water from this, a specific well, put it into a basin, and then they would continue to do this for, uh, for all the days of the week. And at the very last day, the seventh day of the week, they would pour out this great basin now filled with water to, to the Lord as a drink offering to God in order to, to as, a, as, a, as an offering for a better harvest in the coming year. Again, in addition to that, that, that water ritual, there was also a lighting ritual. Every day of that week, the high priest would also light a candle on a menorah. And you've probably seen these before. And so every day they would light this, this a candle menorah. Eventually on the seventh day, you would have a whole menorah lit, seven candles, and there would be this whole procession of the, of the priests in the temple going around in the temple and sort of, sort of imitating the, the pillar of fire that the, that the Israelites saw in the wilderness. And this is where Jesus is making this claim of being the light of the world. In the previous chapter, Jesus already claimed of giving the, 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 live, the water of life, the living water, again, coinciding with that water ritual. And now, in chapter 8, you can imagine as these priests are lighting these candles or having this parade of, of torches and fire, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world that brings people out of darkness. Now, despite these explicit claims, the Jews, the, and remember the term for Jews, in, at least in John's gospel, only refers to really the temple elites, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who, who refused to believe Jesus. These Jews, despite Jesus' claims, re rejected Jesus. Even, even though Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees' response, as we saw in our passage in verse 13, says, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What follows where, and where we left off last time is Jesus having to 
prove once again and give evidence, give witnesses again to justify his claims, to legitimize his claims as the Messiah. But our focus for this morning is to unpack the latter half of our passage, verse 21 to 30, and sort of the conclusion of this discourse that Jesus is having with the temple Pharisees. And again, it, this, this passage of ours that we're going to be looking at explicitly claims that Jesus is, in fact, God. And we see this in verse 24. Look at this with me. It says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. What's interesting to note is that in the original Greek, the original text, it doesn't, have, it doesn't say I am He. It, it, it excludes the word He in it. It just simply leaves I am. It simply says, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The scribes, uh, the, the translators put he there to simply make the, the, the flow of the sentence better. But I, I believe that detracts from what Jesus is trying to, the, the point that Jesus is trying to make in this passage. The, the specific wording is crucial to our understanding because understand, again, the context of it, this is during the Jewish festival of, of booths. And Jew, what Jesus is doing here as he says, I am, is that he's drawing a, a connecting line between himself and the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Jesus is literally invoking the, 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 the tetragrammaton, as scholars call it, the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh, the great I Am. We see that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 in the burning bush, when God gives his name to Moses. And in fact, we see this happen three times in our passage. Jesus, Jesus does this in verse 24, as we just looked at. Then also in verse 28, when he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, in the original text, there's no he there. I am. And then at the very end of this chapter, which we'll look at towards the, in, a, in the next couple of weeks, in verse 58, Jesus said, it says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, the purpose of why Jesus is saying these things, or why he's saying it in this way, is to draw the connection between himself and the, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. The God that the, the, the Jews, the Pharisees actually worship. Jesus was God in human flesh. And now this is important for our understanding because look at, notice the, the judgment that Jesus places on the Pharisees in our passage. The reason why Jesus said that they would die in their sins at the very top of our text there. He says, because they refuse to believe that he was God. Verse 24, again, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now this raises great theological questions in, in relation to the title of our sermon this morning. Was Jesus actually God? And more applicable to us as a follow-up question to that, is it necessary to believe that Jesus is God for our salvation? Is it necessary to believe that Jesus is God for our salvation? And Really, these two questions go hand in hand. If Jesus is God, how, how is that relevant to our salvation? Or if Jesus was not God, how does that affect our salvation? What does that mean about our salvation then? And by Jesus' judgment on the Pharisees, it's pretty clear that what we believe about the divinity of Christ, about the identity of Christ, is crucial, is important to our salvation. Not just, not, and not just, our, 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 not just the salvific work in us, but how we conduct our lives, how we perceive the world. And so our hope for our study this morning to answer this question, was Jesus indeed God? But also showcase from our passage why this truth is crucial to our salvation and our outlook in life and our worldview, even our future, even how, again, how we conduct ourselves in this world. Ultimately, the hope with this passage is to bolster our faith, to encourage our faith, get us to, even, to appreciate all the more the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I was reflecting a little bit uh, as I was preparing this sermon, and then like, what's the point? Like, what am I trying to deliver to you 
in this word, in any sermon. And again, I was reminded that it's to get you to love Jesus more. To get you to love Jesus more. And I've been learning that really at the end of the day, it's love that changes people. It's not simply knowing doctrine or theology. It's, it's connecting the head knowledge with the heart. That's how lives are changed. So the hope is not to simply reinforce theological truths or give you to, to fill up your head with knowledge, but to connect the head and the heart so that our love for the Savior would grow and that would manifest itself in a changed life. That's the goal for everything that we do, that you love Jesus more. So let's answer this question, right? Was Jesus God? All, all hands. All, let me see the hands. Was Jesus God? Yes or no? Everyone who says no, oh, no, you guys put your hands up too quick. Got to wait. No. Well, I'm, I'm sure the confidence here is yes, right? As believers, yes, he was God. But to the Muslims and the Jews, they would say otherwise, right? They would claim that Jesus was maybe just a great prophet, a good moral teacher. To the Jews today, they would still say that Jesus was a false teacher that led people astray from the Jewish faith or led an uprising against the Jews. But not God. Far from God. Again, this, the purpose of John's gospel is to give evidence of Jesus' divinity, of Jesus being the Christ and the Son of God. And as we mentioned earlier, John already provides a list of miracles and demonstrations of, of Christ's divinity and his power, even his authority, that is equal with the Father's. And of course, Jesus' own explicit claims of being God himself. Now, it's not just in the Gospel of John, by the way, that we see the divinity of Christ. Paul as well in Colossians chapter 1, he says that, he is the, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the writer of Hebrews he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and that he upholds, that Jesus himself upholds the universe by the word of his power. Peter, sort of the, the leader of the disciples, he himself says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even, even, the, even doubting Thomas at the resurrection, when he sees Christ again, he sees my Lord and my God. He exclaims to Jesus. So all of the New Testament and its writers claim that Jesus is God. And you can take that and, and believe that, but as C.S. Lewis says in, in his book, Mere Christianity, it's not a matter of proving whether or not Jesus was God, but simply disproving that he was anything else but God. Lewis argues that, that Jesus is either one of three things. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. In, in some iterations of that, it's either that Jesus was a deceiver, delusional, or divine. If Jesus claimed to be God but was not in fact God, then he'd be a liar, right? A deceiver, a simple con artist who lied about his divinity and lied to the masses. Therefore, we cannot accept him if he is a liar. We cannot accept him as a good teacher, a moral teacher. We can't even accept him as a prophet of God because he's saying blasphemies about God. In addition to that, if, if, then we can't, if we can't in ourselves resolve that Jesus is a liar, but he's still claiming to be God, so the other option is that he's a lunatic. He's, a, he's delusional. He truly believed that he was God even though he was not. He was just a crazy person, like someone claiming to be the queen, right? If someone walked into this room and said, I am the queen of England, it's like, okay, buddy, you know, sit down. We don't do that here, right, in this church. But then at the same time, we look at his teachings. We, even if you're not a Christian, you can look at Jesus' teachings, his, his moral arguments, and they are sound, they are coherent, they are logical, filled with reason. Even his actions, even his actions, they, they show compassion to those who are in need. They, they, are, they are intentional, they are deliberate, they are done with love. They're not erratic or impulsive. They're not actions of a madman, a crazy person. So then, so then, if in our reasoning we conclude that Jesus was neither a lunatic, a delusional person, or a liar, a deceiver, 
the only logical conclusion is Jesus was in fact Lord, divine. That his claim to divinity, even though we do not comprehend it or understand, was in fact true. Now this is why our salvation hinges on this reality, on this reality because it requires faith, it requires trust and dependence on this truth that Jesus was and is in fact God. Because if he is not, if, if Jesus was just a man, a liar, a lunatic, then our hope, our faith is futile. Our hope, our faith is just in a man that, that made up stories, made up lies, told lies, deceived people. If Jesus is just a man, our faith is useless. And our text alludes to this and gives reasoning as to why it's important, why our faith in the divinity of Christ is important. And, and so let's unpack this a little. Let's go to verse 21 of our passage. It says in our passage, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. For I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is, of course, referring to the ascension, his return back to the Father. He knew that his time, his earthly ministry at this point in time was almost up. And so here is Jesus saying that he is going to go back to the Father and remember the context of this, right? The context of this passage is right after the, the, the Pharisees reject Jesus' invitation for them to follow him as the light of the world. That's why Jesus is saying, where I am going, you cannot come. And why he says, you will die in your sin. There's a very ominous tone here. Very ominous tone in Christ. This is, again, Jesus proclaiming judgment on the Pharisees. And in verse 22 of our passage, it says, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Suicide in the Jewish faith was very much a, a, a really bad sin. And so when the, the, the Pharisees are saying this, they're partly mocking Jesus. Is he going to kill himself? He's already been telling all these lies and making all these false claims. He's probably going to end up committing one of the worst sins ever. Is he going to kill himself? But notice in the Pharisees' response, they didn't say anything about Christ's warning. They didn't even care that Jesus said, you're going to die in your sin. And in verse 23, Jesus replies. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Again, Jesus is explicitly speaking about his identity. This is a callback to chapter 5 and chapter 6. When Jesus talks about how he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, or he, he, he is from coming from the Father. And then verse 24, this is the, the first part that we're looking at this morning. Again, he calls out the Pharisees for not caring that, these, that they're going to die in their sin. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. He's telling the Pharisees that because of their lack of faith, they would, they would receive the punishment for their sins. And now this is the first reason why it's important. Christ's divinity is important to our salvation and to our faith. The deity of Christ guarantees our forgiveness. The deity of Christ guarantees our forgiveness. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says as we have read many times before, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Keep that word in mind. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I told you to keep in mind that word propitiation. That's an important word in the Christian faith and in our doctrines of salvation. 
It is the act of offering a blood sacrifice to appease the wrath of a deity. That's the general definition of it. Uh, It's the idea of atonement. You're sacrificing something, someone, an animal, to appease the wrath of God. Maybe you've seen in movies or cartoons, right? These tribesmen gather up somebody and they're going to throw them in the volcano so the volcano doesn't blow up and and kill all the people, right? They do that as an act of appeasing what they believe is their God, some volcano or whatever it is, right? And similarly, that act of propitiation is what Christ is doing on the cross. But there is a biblical difference in that instead of man offering a sacrifice to appease God, it is God himself offering a sacrifice to appease his own wrath. Totally different from the pagan worldview. He's offering himself as a sacrifice so that, as we just read, he can pass over for more sins, so that he can, he can, he can justify the sinner to the, all, all those who believe in Christ. Now, this is important to note because if Jesus was just an ordinary man, his sacrifice would not be enough to appease God's wrath. If Jesus was just a normal man born in sin, his sacrifice would be tainted in sin. He wouldn't be the unblemished lamb that was required, the perfect lamb that was required to appease the wrath of God. But because Christ was sinless, not simply because he lived a good and moral life, a perfect life, but because in his divine nature, he was good. He was perfect. Remember in all our conversations about about the depravity of man and fallen humanity, right? We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, because of our sin nature. Jesus did not have a sin nature. His inherent divine nature was good, perfect, and righteous. And because of that, his sacrifice was sufficient to appease the wrath of God and guarantees us forgiveness. God offered himself to appease his own wrath to allow for forgiveness to come, to demonstrate his love. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 and 14, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, the to- waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, this passage is is saying that, yes, his his sacrifice was sufficient, but it also talks about how Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. That's pointing as well to Christ's divinity. That place, that position at the right hand of the father of a king, it was a position of ultimate power, of equal power, of of equal honor. It denoted equality with the person sitting on the throne. All all of that to say Christ's divinity was necessary for our forgiveness. Again, if Christ were not God, listen, brothers and sisters, guess what? We are still in our sins. We are still in, in the depravity of our old self. Our faith would be futile. We are still doomed to experience the punishment of sin. Praise be to God Because his divinity, Christ's divinity, guarantees our forgiveness. Guarantees that his death at the cross was sufficient for our forgiveness, for the remission of sin. Let's move on a little here. Verse 25. It says, So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said, again, remember in the, the previous verse, he says, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so now the Pharisees are a little curious. So who are you? Who are you exactly? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Just what I've been telling you from the very beginning of my, my ministry, all the explicit claims of who I was. Remember that, that incident in the temple where I said, I and the Father are one. Remember my claims of divinity, just exactly who I was claiming to be. And in verse 26, says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. 
But he goes on to say, they did, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus has already been explaining exactly all of this in, in, back in chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Again, he is explaining his, his authority, how, how he's equal to God in authority, in power, in nature, right? Notice as well, it talks about, he, he mentions something very important here. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. If you recall, John chapter 5, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. A lot of what Jesus, again, is saying is, is just repetition of what he's been talking about to, the, to these people. In chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, he already said these things. But I, I really like the fact that even though he said these things already to these Pharisees, he's, he's gracious enough to repeat them, right? Like you still don't get it. Okay, fine. Here's, here's the story again. Here's, my, here's the explicit claim again. Here's my nature again. Here's my authority again. Then verse 28, it says, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He's talking about the crucifixion here, right? Being lifted up. And only after that event, only after the, the cross and the grave, do these, will these religious elites believe. And sure enough, that's what we see the narrative in, in Scripture, right? Nicodemus, after, he was after Jesus was crucified, Nicodemus is the one who helps take his body away. And Paul himself, formerly Saul, who was a Pharisee as well, he turned after all of that, and even in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches to the masses on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, he proclaims, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was only after the crucifixion that these elites, or even these, these Orthodox Jews, came to the conclusion that Jesus was in fact who he claimed to be. The great I am. And it says in Acts that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. No doubt some Pharisees were involved in that. But notice as well in that verse, verse 28, Christ is giving two more explicit claims of his identity. Again, we talked about the first as we mentioned. Then you, know, then you will know that I am, right? That he is in fact the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh then you will know that I am. That's an explicit claim that he is God. But the second claim that we see in that verse is when he claims the title of the Son of Man. The Son of Man. In the Old Testament, this is where that, that, that title comes from, the Son of Man. In the Old Testament, God uses this title for Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, over nine, well, close to 93 times. And it denotes or refers to the prophet's humanity. And so when, when Jesus uses his title for himself, he takes on, it's to denote his, his own humanity, his own human nature. Remember that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man as well. And so whenever Jesus takes his title of the Son of Man, he's, he's, he's also referring to his own humanity, that he is 100% man. But also... It claims the title, this, this, this title of the Son of Man is a claim to his divinity as well. If you, if you recall in the other Gospels, whenever he uses this phrase, it's always referring to his divine attributes. For example, Matthew chapter 9, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Only God could forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John chapter 5, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So, so this title of the Son of Man, whenever Jesus uses it, it is denoting his divine authority. Now in addition to that, this title of Son of Man also refers to a messianic prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. This is one of the great messianic prophecies that the Jews look forward to why they were waiting on, on the Messiah and, and, and why this title of the Son of Man was very important to them. It says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, this is Daniel speaking, I saw in the night visions 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming to be the son of man whom the ancient of days was given, had given a dominion and glory and authority to in which the ancient of days God himself gave a kingdom where all people from every tribe and tongue will serve and bow down to, and whose dominion will last forever and ever, and whose kingdom will never be conquered and will have no end. Jesus is claiming to be this son of man, specific son of man. That's what he's claiming in John chapter 8. And really why this, this, our passage takes more of an ominous tone It's more of a threatening tone. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you will know only when after you have crucified the Son of Man, that same king that you've been waiting for, the one who will have all authority and power and dominion over all the earth, only after you yourselves have killed him, then you will know who I am. Then you will know who the true ruler of this world is. And so that brings us to the second reason why Christ's divinity is important to us. Because Christ's divinity governs our lives. It governs our lives. Jesus is the true ruler of this world. His kingdom is an everlasting one, one that will, as Revelation proclaims, will conquer all earthly kingdoms, governments, and nations, and bring them under his rule. That's good news and hope for us, right? If you've ever been frustrated with our government or, 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 or man's systems, the world's systems, The Bible declares that they will all end and under the feet of Jesus Christ. But understand, church, brothers and sisters, that is not just a future hope. As believers today, we are citizens of that kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom today. In Philippians chapter 3, it says, verse 20, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Listen, as as citizens of heaven, we are called then to live as ambassadors of that King, of Jesus the King, of that Kingdom. We've read this plenty of times before, 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to the world through us. Therefore, we should no longer live for ourselves, nor by the standards or the perspectives of this world or of man's kingdom. That's what what Jesus meant back in verse 23 of our passage. And he says, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not of this world. I am functioning on a different standard. I am functioning under a different governance, on a different authority. Similarly, his people are too. We, brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, we function under a different premise, a different worldview, a different standard. We must not think and behave like this world. Our lives should be conducted in a way that represents our God, our King. Christ's divinity, His kingship, ought to govern how we live in this life. Understand the gravity of this, right? And, and why, why Jesus claims to, to the, being the Son of Man to the Pharisees takes an an ominous ominous tone. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Then Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the judgment to come, Knowing the wrath that our king is going to pour out on the fallen world, we persuade others. We no longer live for ourselves. Knowing the wrath 
of our God that we ourselves have been saved from, we, we live a different life. We no longer live for ourselves. Remember, the connections that Jesus have been, has been making between himself and the God of the Old Testament. I, I, I'm always baffled at, at the Christians who, who, who believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament are completely different books and how, how the God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New Testament. That how, for some reason, the New Testament God is more loving and more caring. and That's preposterous. The same God who rained fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah was Jesus Christ. The same God who brought the plagues down on Egypt is Jesus Christ. That same God who is just and punishes sin in the Old Testament is the same God who punishes sin and who is just in the New Testament. The only difference, the only difference is that instead of God's wrath being poured out on humanity in the, like in the Old Testament, God's wrath in the New Testament is being wholly poured out on the Son of God. The same degree, fire and brimstone, rage and fury, all on the Son of God. Just so that we could be forgiven. So that we can no longer live for ourselves, but live for the true king of this world. How does that look like? Well, it means in every aspect of our life, every, every detail of our life must swear allegiance to Christ, to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Every act in, 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 that we, we commit in accordance with his standards, every financial decision made with his kingdom in mind, Every life choice made with his glory as the outcome. Every interaction with the people around us, the people of this world, made with the love and grace and the demeanor of someone of his kingdom. It means we will not transfer our hope, our trust, our joy, our allegiance to any person or thing of this world. It means that only Christ is Lord. It's interesting, the early Christians died because of this principle. The early Christians, when, when the Romans came and demanded that, that the Christians, that believers, would declare Caesar as Lord, as most Roman citizens had to, when the Romans de de demanded that the, the Christians would declare Caesar as Lord so that they could reap the benefits of being a Roman citizen. Just say that Caesar is Lord and, and you could have these things be part of society. Even if you don't mean it, the Christians said no. As a result, as a result, they, they were used as human candles. They were thrown into the Colosseum to be fed to wild animals. That title of Lord that the, the Romans were asking the Christians to declare Caesar with had the same sentiments. Had the same sentiments that declared Caesar was king of kings or that Caesar was divine, that Caesar was a sovereign ruler. And as a result, Christians refused, refused laying their lives down just to hold up this principle. Meanwhile, today, Christians who willingly will shut down services for governments, try to appease mandates so that they can incur favor, change doctrine, change the, the gospel just to be more politically correct, to comply with the worldview of sin. Brothers and sisters, this world is not our home. We are merely sojourners in it, awaiting the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. We must not waver in our allegiance. We must conduct our lives as citizens of not Mississauga or Ontario or of Canada, of this world. We must conduct our lives as citizens of heaven, those who, have been, those who are governed by Christ. Let's go to verse 28 of our passage here. It says we finish up. 
So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and, and that I do nothing on my authority. But I love what, what he says next, right? But he says, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He, is, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Again, he, he's, he's said these things before in, in the, the chapters, um, earlier chapters of the Gospel of John. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's talking about his mission, his the reason why, why he, do, he does the things that he does in the ministry. Jesus is referring to the will of the Father. And what are the things that are pleasing to the Father? It says in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father is doing. See the parallel? For whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Then verse 21, I love this. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills. So in chapter 8, when Jesus is talking about it, He only does the things that are pleasing to the Father, this is what He's talking about. It's giving life. It's giving, raising the dead to new life. The final reason why Christ's divinity matters to us, why it's important to our faith, because it guards our salvation. It guards our salvation. Christ's work is the Father's work. The Father's work was, as we just read, to give life and to give it abundantly. Read in other passages. Give life abundantly. You know, as a, as a pastor, I've had many privileges. The, the privileges of, of conducting the weddings of, of, of some of our members here, our brothers and sisters here, and even being able to do child dedications and walking with, with people in their struggles and, 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 and discipleship. And, you know, but one of the privileges that I, I don't I haven't gotten used to yet is uh, conducting funerals. Conducting funerals. In the past two weeks, I've had to do two funerals. My first funerals in these past few past few weeks. And this past week, the second funeral I had to do was was a celebration of life. I got invited to to lead the the service there, and I was told that the lady that passed was a believer. And so, you know, I prepared my my sermon in with that mindset. That okay, we're 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 praising the Lord for this life of this believer, and knowing that this this woman who had passed is she was 98 years old, you know, and 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 um, that she was a a woman of faith. So I prepared the sermon that with that mindset. But during the service, we we had of course relatives come up and give their tributes and talk, you know, told their stories about this woman and. Um, but as the stories were being told, it started to dawn on me that maybe this woman was not actually a believer. Because none of the stories that, that her kids told or her friends and loved ones told was, was over her faith. Or even her, her, her devotion to Christ. And so, you know, as, I, as I'm listening to these stories, I'm thinking... Wait a minute, that's not what I wrote in my sermon. And, and it really, what ultimately happened, it, it grieved me to think, to, to, well, not just think, but to hear these hopeful words of these people who were hoping that this woman was in heaven in a better place, when really there was no evidence, there was no sign her life. Really, I, I, I think I realized by the end of all the tributes that I think I was the only Christian in that room. The family expectation to see their mother, their grandmother again was, was based on the fact that she was a good mom. She lived a morally good life. 
not based on anything of, of God's word, of any, any, any truth. And so as a minister of God's word, of his truth, who knew better, <laughs> now with grace and compassion, of course, I had to preach. Listen, it's only those in Christ who receive eternal life. It's only those in Christ who are guaranteed a place with no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain, no more suffering. Just as we read at the beginning of our service. That is the unfortunate reality of those who are outside of the faith. Who do not have their faith in the living Christ. In the living Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his, to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is Christ's divinity that guards our salvation. He being the author and perfecter of our faith, and since He is the one who, who, the one to save us, to give us life, He's also the one to assure us that life will come to pass. And we will receive that promise, eternal life. He, as, just we, as, as we just read, is the one who guards it, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If Christ was simply a man, there would be no power to ensure us of our salvation. There would be no guarantee for us that we have eternal life. Because Jesus is God, we can rest assured that once this mortal coil ends, we will have new life in Christ. Life forevermore. And we can, be, we, we, can, we can have confidence in that because Jesus is the great high priest who is constantly interceding for us. Jesus is the king who has called us and secures a place for us in his kingdom. Jesus is the great bridegroom of the church who prepares a place for us. He is the God who loves us and will preserve us to the end. The reason why the deity of Christ is important for our salvation and why it's necessary for us to believe in is because it guarantees our forgiveness. Christ was a sufficient sacrifice to appease God's wrath. It governs our lives. As citizens of heaven, we must conduct ourselves as those, under, uh, who, who, those who are under a different standard, a different rule than those of this world. And the deity of Christ guards our salvation. It is Christ himself in his divine power that secures our future. It secures eternal life for us. The invitation for for all of us this morning is is clear and simple. Believe. Believe that Jesus was not simply a good teacher, a moral teacher, a, a great prophet, a miracle worker. Believe that he was not simply those things, but believe that he was in fact who he claimed to be, God himself. Believe, the whole, put your entire dependency, your entire trust, and your entire hope for, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the escape from the wrath of God, for eternal life, on that truth. That only Jesus is sufficient to save. Only He can save. And listen, if you have yet to do this, brothers and sisters, I plead the mercies of God as, as, a, as a brother in Christ that loves you. We have yet to do this. Be reconciled to God. Don't, don't, be, don't, don't, be, don't be a believer just by word of mouth, right? 
Don't be like, like this, this, this family just hopeful and wishful thinking that one day you'll, you'll get into heaven. Have confidence. Have security that your, your life is secure in the hands of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what our living hope is. We serve the living God, person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O gracious God, O holy God, who gave yourself up so that we can have life, so that we can be forgiven of our sins. O precious Lord who died on the cross, the death that we should have died. Who paid for our sins. Who credits your righteousness to us. Help our unbelief, O God. Help us, O Lord, believe in the sure foundations of gospel, your truth. Help us believe, O Lord, in, in the security, in the confidence that we have that the God that we worship, the God who, who has declared love over, over us, who created us, who has a plan and a future for us. Help us believe that that same God is the, the same God who died for us. Who made a way by the blood of Christ so that our sins would be forgiven so that the veil would be torn and so that we would have access to the throne of grace and have confidence and security that our, 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 our place in your kingdom is sure, is certain. Father, I pray for the hearts who have yet to put their faith in you, who have yet to wholly trust in the God who died for them, in the sufficiency of that death to pay for their sins, to give access to the throne. Lord, I pray that their hearts return today. That Holy Spirit, that you would do your regenerative work, convict hearts. And I pray that they would bear the fruit of salvation. Father, I pray as we have looked towards the identity of your son more closely this morning that you would bolster in us the joy of our salvation that you remind us oh God of how sweet and how good our savior is that despite not deserving an ounce of the shed blood despite not earning any good, any grace or mercy from you. As you declare in your word, you demonstrate your love for us. And that while we're still sinners, you willingly chose to die for us. So Father, forgive us for the times where we do not live up to this gospel. Forgive us for the times where we allow for a hint of sin in our lives or we swear allegiance to a different Savior. And I pray that you would help our hearts to get back on track. Help our love for you increase, O oh God, and our love for the world decrease. That you, O oh Lord, would 
be at the center of everything that we do and everything that we live for in this life. And everything we do would bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, your matchless name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.